Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Please send feedback about the sound in this episode. This is actually the second time that I've gone through and edited it. I had to learn how to make the guest's voice louder, and that was tough for me to figure out because I'm really new to this. So bear with me, send me feedback, let me know if you're having trouble hearing it. And if you would include how you listen to it, do you listen to it in your car, in your, in your ear, in your AirPod, that kind of thing. Do you have headphones? Any information that can help me make this a better show would be appreciated. Today's guest is Professor Stanley Hauerwas. He is Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke Divinity School. We'll be discussing an essay titled, A Story-Formed Community, Notes on Watership Down. This essay begins with an, a reference to a different essay in the Hauerwas Reader. And he references it because in the other essay, he lists out 10 theses for reforming Christian ethics. So I'm going to go ahead and list those now because I do refer to them and they are helpful to know, to understand why he's reading Watership Down the way that he is. Thesis one, the social significance of the gospel requires the recognition of the narrative structure of Christian convictions for the life of the church. Thesis two, every social ethic involves a narrative whether it is concerned with the formation of basic principles of social organization and or with concrete policy themselves. Thesis three, the ability to provide an adequate account of our existence is the primary test of the truthfulness of a social ethic. Thesis four, communities formed by a truthful narrative must provide the skills to transform fate into destiny so that the unexpected, especially as it comes in the form of strangers, can be welcomed as gift. Thesis 5. The primary social task of the church is to be itself, that is, a people who have been formed by a story that provides them with the skills for negotiating the danger of this existence, trusting in God's promise of redemption. Thesis 6. Christian social ethics can only be done from the perspective of those who do not seek to control national or world history, but who are content to live, quote, out of control. Thesis 7. Christian social ethics depends on the development of leadership in the church that can trust and depend on the diversity of gifts in the community. Thesis 8. For the church to be, rather than to have, a social ethic means we must recapture the social significance of common behavior, such as acts of kindness, friendship, and the formation of families. Thesis 9. In our attempt to control our society, Christians in America have too readily accepted liberalism as a social strategy appropriate to the Christian story. And finally, Thesis 10. The church does not exist to provide an ethos for democracy or any other form of social organization, but stands as a political alternative to every nation witnessing to the kind of social life possible for those 
who have been formed by the story of Christ. So I would just like to take a moment and explain why this, if this is about talking to experts, asking questions of experts about biblical studies, why do something that is so clearly theological? And I think it's important to remember that biblical texts, biblical narratives really lose their importance when you take them out of communities. And as much as I want to talk to academics about how they study these things, as academics, whether it's the linguistic, the archaeological, historical, cultural, any of those things that could be studied of any other ancient text, while I respect and want to engage with those in those conversations, I don't want to lose the thread of why these texts still exist overall. They exist in our world for different reasons than other ancient texts. If you want to read the Iliad or the Odyssey, or Beowulf, or any other really old text. You still need academics to be able to access it, unless you are an expert in the languages, history, culture, all the other things of the world surrounding that text. But it's not quite as significant. The story doesn't have the impact on the lives of people. And so when I say that, I don't just mean Christians. I understand that Professor Hauerwas is a Christian, and he's speaking from that point of view. But for Jews or anyone else who wants to engage with this text as a spiritual foundation for their understanding of the world, I want to make sure we don't lose that thread as well. So moving on to Watership Down. Watership Down is a novel. It's about rabbits. They're not wind in the willows, anthropomorphic rabbits. They're just rabbits. They can communicate with one another. They can't communicate with human beings. The basic beats of the story are as follows. Two brother rabbits, Hazel and Fiverr, are out eating grass, and they see a sign being posted by some men. They don't know what it says, but Fiverr has a bad feeling. And he goes on to predict that something bad is going to happen. So they go to the head of their current warren in Sandalford, and they tell the leader, the Threra, something's got to happen. We've got to leave. We've got to go. Something's, something bad is coming. And he rejects them. And so they escape the Warren and take some other marginalized, outcast, unimportant rabbits with them. They meet a lot of challenges. They cross a river. They come across a couple of different Warrens that have a different outlook on life than they do. And they end up establishing their own warren and defending it. And all of that is done under the auspices of telling one another stories and understanding the world through the lens of the Prince of Rabbits, El Arrera. And El Arrera is something of a trickster. He's a briar rabbit type. I think in the book they even say there's a little bit of him in Odysseus and several other tricksters, that Elevator's been around for a long time, and these rabbits tell each other the stories of Elevera. So that's what this essay is picking up, is saying a story-formed community will exist in this way. And so Harwas is applying that to Christian social ethics. Coincidentally, 
while I was preparing for this interview, I was also listening to the audiobook of the revised version of Walter Brueggemann's An Introduction to the Old Testament, The Canon and Christian Imagination. And it's a pretty helpful overlap. This was the version that he revised with Todd Linefeld. And I, I won't say that I didn't have an understanding of why Stanley Howard Wass wrote this essay, had this approach. I will say that re-listening to an understanding of the imaginative process of creating the canon of the Hebrew Bible or Christian Old Testament was really helpful. This idea that it was an imaginative, engaging process that a community was going through to determine who they were going to be and what their worship was going to look like. So I will recommend that. So before we get started, though, I want to say two things. One, read this book, read Watership Down. I think it's more important probably than reading the, the essay that we're discussing. It's a wonderful book. It's so exciting. I read it in 2003 or 2004, and I've been recommending it to people ever since. It's so fun. There's never a point in the story where something's not happening. It's a beautiful story. If you don't want to read the book, there's the old cartoon that came out, I think, in the 70s, 70s or 80s. But then Netflix has made, as of 2020, a newer updated version. It's episodes, so that might be a fun thing to sit down and do with your kids. It is exciting. There's a lot of danger. So you may want to screen it if your kids are too young and you're concerned about how they will take some of the some of the storyline that's a little bit more aggressive and maybe violent. I also want to take a moment to rectify something I did not do well in the first time that I recorded this intro. I want to walk through the schedule. Initially, I wanted to do a quarterly release in 2023 and I I will I have met that. I have enough episodes for that. And then the plan was for 2024 to release episodes once every other month. And pretty quickly, starting recording in March and by early to mid-April, I think I had eight episodes recorded. And I felt like being able to cover the four for 2023 and having already four episodes for 2024, even though I'm not going to be recording anymore for a few more months, I felt okay with saying, I'm going to go ahead and start releasing episodes monthly for 2024. They will be released in the following order. This episode, if you're hearing it after it's released for free, it came out 1 July. The next episode will be 1 October. That's Jody Magnus, and she'll be discussing her article, Toilets and Toilet Humor, in the story of Eglon's murder by Ehud. And that's from the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 142, Number 1. 1 January, Chris Tilling discusses his contributions to the book Beyond Old and New Perspectives, Reflections on the Work of Douglas Campbell, which he also edited. The conversation broadens from just his contributions or even just the book or even just Douglas Campbell and into Pauline studies more generally. 1 February, Colin Cornell discusses his contribution to the book Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Ancient Lookalikes, which he also edited. One March, Ben Witherington III discusses apocalyptic literature 
as it is described in his book, The Problem with Evangelical Theology, Testing the Exegetical Foundations of Calvinism, Dispensationalism, Wesleyanism, and Pentecostalism. One April, Todd Linnefelt discusses his book, The Hebrew Bible as Literature, a very short introduction. All of these episodes will be released on schedule for free, but for $5 a month, you can listen to every episode as soon as it's edited on Patreon. That's actually how I knew to go back and fix this episode. My Patreon, a couple of my Patreon supporters let me know. I couldn't hear it. It was too quiet. And so I set about the task of trying to, trying to fix it. I really appreciate this to anyone who will be listening in the future. Please send me feedback. I'll have social media out there in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And now, without further ado, or any more talking from me, Professor Stanley Howard-Loss. Professor Stanley Howard-Loss, welcome to the podcast. I like to start out having the guests tell the listeners a little bit about themselves before we jump into questions. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm retired. I taught beginning at Augustana College for a couple of years. 14 years at Notre Dame and over 35 at Duke. I'm a theologian. I specialize in ethics. I don't particularly like that way of putting things, but that's the way people understand it. That is that ethics is somehow distinguishable from theology. And I think that's not a very good way to think. I have written quite a number of books. I'm known for the introduction of virtue into moral reflection. I have been deeply influenced by Alistair McIntyre, who is, I believe, one of the great philosophical minds of our time. That pretty well. I've been, I'm married to Paula Gilbert, who's a ordained Methodist minister, though she's under appointment at the Church of the Holy Family, which is the Episcopal Church. I was married for some time to a lady that was bipolar, and she ultimately left when Paula and I married. We have a son, Adam, who is in information services at Providence College, and then who is a fine killed being. I guess that's enough. I might, I might say that people are interested in anything further. Not I have a memoir called Hannah's Child that, that I think is hitting the high spots. I didn't know that. I'll look into that. I think you'd enjoy it. When we're done here, I'm going to look that one up. I wanted to have you on here today to talk about something that is, is a little bit, probably to some people, out in left field compared to where I've been so far, which is trying to talk to linguists, archaeologists, things like that. We're going to talk about your 1981 essay, A Story-Formed Community, Reflections on Watership Down. And there's a connection to another essay that's also in the Howard Wass Reader, Reforming Christian Social Ethics, 10 Theses. I'll list those 10 theses in the introduction, so we don't need to belabor that particular point. But starting out, just jumping right into it because your time is really valuable. I want to ask, with regard to Watership Down and communities of faith that are story-formed, 
how do you understand narratives to sustain human nature, broadly speaking? So, I understand a story has a category that is mainly how it is that our lives are shaped by fundamental narratives that are necessarily shared by community. The Watership Down story is about how by facing danger, rabbits escaping from a war and be destroyed become a people who are able to have their lives shaped by the fundamental story of El Raya, who is the great rabbit who represents the nature of what it means to be a rabbit in a way that doesn't avoid the dangers of being a rabbit, but finds a way to live facing danger in a way that enhances the community's relation to one another. In particular, in terms of your interest in biblical criticism, a crucial rabbit, one of the crucial rabbits is Fiber, who has the sense of the fundamental stories of Elaliah that give him a wisdom that otherwise cannot be accounted for in terms of where dangers lie that must be confronted in constructive ways. In an interesting way, that's what the story in scripture embodies. Namely, Israel never was safe when she tried to be safe in a way that did not allow her to worship God right. Because being a people shaped by faith in God that is God that is in the heart of Israel's life that creates a people who need the stories that we now call the Bible as a way to go on into the world as rabbits because otherwise they become something other than what they were created to be. The community that just to poses rabbits watership down is of course Sandapore, which is a warren of rabbits in which they have made peace with a farmer who keeps them half wild, but who every once in a while kills one of them in order to have food. And one thing that you can't do in the Sandalworth Warren is tell one another the stories of Elaraya. 
you become abstract poets who never ask what has happened to this or that rabbit because they have been sacrificed for your continuing existence and so on. So the high rend wires you down as the articulation of fundamental presumptions in political theory that have implications how you understand how narratives work for the sustaining communities as a long-legged response to your question. That's the way I tried to think of what your account. Long-winded responses are my favorite responses because I like to mute the mic and just let you talk. Uh, it's so when you bring up one of the other Warrens, because there are two other, there's the Warren they start out at in Sandalford and then there's Cowslips Warren and then Ephrafa and both of the other Warrens are cautionary tales because they don't tell the stories of Ephrafa right. and one, they're just minimized as, oh, that's cute. That's quaint. The other one, you don't hear them at all. And they're both trying to provide a kind of security, but there's no voice of the identity of who they are. It's just that you feel like that's a fair way of looking at those other two Warrens. I do. General Wound War, of course, is the attempt to have rabbits survive by a strong leader who will offer safety in response. I mean, are in condensed as an alternative to rabbits needing to we care to one another, he trained that are being obedient to a strong leader who can kill in a way that keeps the Warren safe, safe. But of course it doesn't keep the Warren safe. And the ultimate conflict between Watership Down, Warren, the general wasn't warrants worn is inevitable. And what is peculiarly interesting is how Black Bearish, the strong rabbit associated with water hip now, defeats General Wizard, not by strength, but by cleverness of knowing how to do the right thing at the right time. It's, it's a very interesting, given our politics currently, interesting way to resist hearing. I, in that victory too, because I went, I'm a slow reader, so I got the audio book and re-listened to Watership Down, which by the way, I only ever read because of your essay. When I was 20 or 21 years old, I came across the essay. This and St. Maybe were both books that you have essays on in the Hauerwas Reader, and I went out and bought them both, and they are both magnificent representations of what you said they were. But in, in the victory, in that final fight with Woundwort, the almost seeming imminence of death is still a sign that, oh, I've beaten him. Like, he, he did not stop me. He's not getting into this Warren to get what he wanted, which was to come back and get the does. I stopped him even in death is a win. Is that a significant part of how Watership Down d defended or 
remained themselves? That's, that's an easy one. Yes. <laughs> of course, that's crucial. And the, the way the novel ends with Hazel and I can't remember any of the other rabbit was, it may have been Blackberry, were laying in the grass and they heard one of the does speaking about how El Orion saved the war and it was a recapitulation of what Hazel had done. And Hazel says, I somehow think I heard that story before. I'm not sure. So you become part of the language that seems to be offered is through myth that sustains the very being of what it means to be a good of war through remembering the stories breathed, retold in a way that shapes the community's future. And Hazel, of course, dies peaceably at that time. So death is never to be denied, but a way to be consistent in the current our life, living with the stories that we take to be normative or constituted who we are. I think remembrance is an interesting thing that you bring up there because in in cowslips, so the very secure, but it's protected by man, which rabbits are supposed to know men only bring destruction. In, in, in cowslips, Warren, you're not allowed to ask where anyone went. And in Ephrafa, if you say something and that idea is rejected by the leadership, could be wound war or anyone else in charge, if the hierarchy rejects your point of view, you are immediately to forget it. And that's a thing that they see in a rabbit that they take on. Whereas the memory that we see, and that that's actually one of the things I made note of is Hazel hearing a story that's a, like a kind of a bringing together of two different things that he was a party to. And he's, oh yeah, I think I remember that story, but not as his own because they, is that them taking on right. El Herrera's identity as they're identifying with like, how do you see that memory juxtaposition in these different communities? I see it as a shaping of our lives in a way that is truthful, but not its truthful retelling in a way that avoids fundamentalism. <laughs> fundamentalism wants to make the stories as, uh, that must be told in a way that denies the imagination. And that's what Archgift Down gives you as an alternative, namely the story itself is shaped and shapes the imagination that makes it possible to live well. I think there's something interesting to say about the prophetic as well, because I know the gradient for me when I was growing up, hearing about prophecy, you assume it is predictive. And there's a component of that here with Fiverr foreknowing or forecasting that right. something bad is about to happen to Sandalford. But the remainder isn't really predictive. It's more 
an analysis of their situation, like you said, predicated on the stories they tell one another. Is that? No, I, fiber is, at least in terms of Hebrew prophecy, is he's not exactly just saying doesn't have the same character as the Hebrew prophet. Hebrew prophet does says the Lord and tells the community what is required in order to be community ready to respond to the saith the Lord. Hazel has more intuitions, other and intuitions are shaped by stories of Eliah, but Hazel doesn't know that. And that's why it makes it hard to trust what he says that they must do in order to survive. When the original sign went up, had the original warrant where they were, he can't read it, but he just knows that it's nature. And Hazel tries to convince the old wise leader of the original one that they ought to listen to him because his intuitions ought to turn out to be right. But the leader knows that change is not. Change oftentimes makes power as power. It says, no, everything's fine, but Hazel. What is Hazel's great Nastahak Tolan? What fiber suggests is needed? Leadership requires the commitments that oftentimes are dangerous, feasible, undertakes that. And what, how Hazel becomes the leader of Watership Down as a born is when they have to cross the stream, he refuses to leave the weakest rip left apply and endangers the whole community. But if they had help float wounded rabbit across the river, they wouldn't have been watershed down. And it, you actually bring up, so Pipkin is that, that smallest rabbit who as you say, he's small, but unlike Fiverr, he really has nothing to offer. There's one of the rabbits is really strong. One is really fast. One tells stories. One is really ingenious. He's the one who gets them floated across the river. Everyone has something to give, but what is Pipkin's, like, what is his contribution, do you think, being the smallest with none of those other abilities? The willingness to live needing help. That's a great gift that Pimpkin gives. It's interesting in terms of how to think about watership down in relationship to your main agenda, that is the role of scripture and historical reconstruction of the text. I, I don't know if I wrote a book many years ago called Unleashing the Scripture, Reading the Bible on Captivity to America, in which I argue that 
historical criticism and fundamentalism are just two sides of the same coin. They both say that they both are the result of the Protestant heresy of Sola Scriptura and got carried into Sola text through the invention on the printing press, which then was given ideological formation through creation of people who believed they could read the Bible without spiritual guidance are moral formation. So fundamentalism and historical criticism are both attempts to help scripture meaningless shaping the community without the kind of stories that Watership Down represents. I suggest that um, holy thing that needs to be done is take the Bible out of the hands of individuals in America and put it on lecterns, how people crawl up it's confessing uh, that we are the sinners to be sure. And therefore, we need help in reading the stories of Alfred or the shaping of future humanity that has the characteristics that come from worship and I truly. So that's how I thought I was seeing the kind of stored JP that is part of Watership Town. I'm sure you've run on to that position before. I have. Can you point to any communities that you would say they're engaging with the biblical narrative generally or with biblical narratives specifically? I think I go to a church family, family in Chapel Hill. Episcopal Church, I think, is shaped by scripture and through exegetical committees, through preaching, and in general, recognizes biblical authority is the shaping of a community that is capable of receiving the, the stories of scripture without watering them. I think, I think the kind of development of prosperity gospel and this kind of thing, as far as I'm concerned, that's ideology to underwrite the legitimacy people who Jesus returning when heaven totally robbers. They the scripture is also in many ways best read by people without money. God's scripture is dangerous. That will put you in contact in which uh, what you think is your system. Is that a, do you think that's a, a matter of power that biblical narratives undermine power in kind of the same way that the power we see in these Warrens that miss the mark is abused or misunderstood to be abused. And what Watership Down is aiming for is 
a different kind of power. Absolute watership down. Hazel, no doubt, remained a leader. Leaders have power, but his power was that in which follower could recognize the stories and develop item that shaped me who they were. And that's, that's, I think, the way a scripture scholarship is supposed to work in our Christians and, of course, Jews, who also have a very human relation to the text of Cholco. The last interview that I did was actually with a rabbi, and we were talking about Genesis 1 as a priestly text, and I was asking, what do you do with this text as there is once there is no more temple? How do you engage with a text like this when you're changing your what your community is because it's not temple or land-based anymore? How do you do that? And he had an inter- interesting answer, but Christianity kind of came up around the same time as rabbinic Judaism. Christianity is a sectarian form of Judaism that was one of the ways that after the destruction of the temple, a people were born to worship the God. And it's to be found in Jesus truthfully. The, you no doubt know the famous story of Rabbi, I'm suddenly blocking his name. He was the rabbi there. Really, after the destruction of the temple, created what we now know as rabbinic Judaism. Rabbi Yah. They, they went north in several rabbis to kind of study Torah as the way Israel was to be Israel. And there's a famous story about Rabbi Yavedi and Rabbi Jacob and Rabbi Abraham were studying Torah and they were debating an issue of interpretation of Torah and Rabbi Abraham said after a while, if my interpretation of law is right, let the walls of the house fall down. The walls, according to settlement, just feel like rabbis, only went halfway. And Rabbi Jacob said, if my interpretation of the law is correct one, I, the tree outside this house fall down. The tree not wanting to settle the dispute of my rabbis. I went half white. The rabbi Yahweh said, My views are right. May Yahweh himself say that my views are right. There was a roll of thunder and rabbi, and Yahweh said, Rabbi Yahweh's views are the right ones. But uh, the other rabbi said, where is it written that Yahweh can settle a dispute among rabbis that way? And 
Yahweh went ahead, went away, shaking his head, saying, my people have defeated me. My people have defeated me. And that, that's the mark of maturity of the people of Israel. And it comes to how you read scripture. I wish I'd grown up with Christians having stories that funny, but we never did, to my knowledge. I know your time is short. We only have a few more minutes. Are there resources, books, blogs, podcasts, whatever, that you would recommend to people in this area of narrative and engagement with a community? There's a terrific Jewish theologian at the University of Virginia. He's retired now, named Peter Oaks. He, I highly recommend his work. He's very conversant with Christianity. I think in terms of biblical scholars, Richard Hayes' work on the Old Testament in the New is very important. The, I'm trying to think there are so many good biblical scholars, but what's happened is the beginning people reclaiming scripture from biblical scholars in a way that helps us come on your bits of art in a constructive way. The Brazos commentaries on scripture where you read scripture theologically, I think is very important. I have a commentary on the book of Matthew in it, I think. It's that a lot of the fundamental conceptual issues and theological issues associated with the use of scripture in arguing. But I, I think reading philosophers like Alistair McIntyre, even though he's philosopher and he doesn't use scripture and much, is also very important. I am reminded in this conversation of a book by, I believe, someone who was a student of yours. Samuel Wells, was he your student? Hey, Sam, it is PhD at University of John Hogley. So he wasn't my official student, but he wrote a very fine book explaining what I'm about. I read, I think in 2007, so I don't know how old it was by the time I got a hold of it, but Improvisation was a really interesting book. It's wonderful book. I think took a metaphor that N.T. Wright had been using and fleshed it out in a really helpful way. Yeah, that's right. N.T. I'm very, I'm very fond of N.T., but sometimes he wants to make to do more with history than Unless you have anything else for us, I'm going to go ahead and call this one good. <laughs>